Genre. Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are splashing through Disney's The Little Mermaid one minute at a time. I'm Kester Dorowski. I'm Andrew Dorowski. And we are joined for the final time by, or for this movie at least, by Thomas from Never Ending Minute. Thank you guys. It's been a fantastic week. Yes, it has. And it's Friday. Happy yes, Friday. Yes, it is. Yay. <laughs> uh, Today, we are discussing Minute 10, which begins with Scuttle singing and vocalizing to himself, and it ends with Ariel saying, a dinglehopper. Minute 10 of The Little Mermaid features Ariel and Flounder visiting Scuttle, and Scuttle telling Ariel and Flounder about the dinglehopper. We should just, right off the bat, go ahead and talk about who is the voice of Scuttle. Yeah, I didn't pull that up. Hold on. What? Oh, you just have it on a different page in your notebook. You are prepared for this. (laughs) Yes. The voice of Scuttle is Buddy Hackett. Which I think is probably the... I don't know if it's the only one, but it's the only person I would think of who is basically a cameo in this film. Right. And this this is the beginning, I think, of them doing a super famous person that a lot of an older generation would recognize that kids kids aren't going to recognize it, but parents will. So. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, I guess the next best example of this would be um, a Robin Williams as the genie. Right. Uh, where you have this character. It's like, this is an established comedic character with their own sort of brand. And we're putting them in. And the genie admittedly is a much bigger uh, part in, in Aladdin than Scuttle plays in this. But like, they're not asking him to be anything but himself. <laughs> right. For this one. And it works great. Like, they make the character Scuttle work with this voice in such a wonderful way. Yeah. Do you guys happen to know how much of this was scripted and how much of it is just him riffing? I'm guessing mostly scripted. Um, or at least uh, some bullet points. They, you know, I'm sure that they had established, call it a dingle hopper, um, say it's for hair. Because that comes into play later. But I think the way he says everything is certainly his own flair. Like I don't, all, I don't, all the words he adds and everything. Yeah, and, and the words and the words he chooses to pronounce correctly. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it that way because I'd say most of them are pronounced comedically. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I don't know. imagine they would like just give him... Like maybe Dingo Hopper wasn't even part of it. Like they just gave him this thing and said, "Okay, tell me about this thing and make sure it has something to do with air." And I could see him just like inventing this stuff on the spot because the comedians back in that day were talented like that. Like they were true artists, and and imp- their improv was their life. Not that they aren't now, but like there was just it, a different class back then. That was sort of the. One of the the main styles was this kind of prop comedy, um, right? An improvised prop comedy, uh, and I I know when it came to Aladdin, they spent a lot of time with Robin Williams in the booth, and they just would give him a box full of stuff and let him go, right? For for a time, so maybe they kind of pioneered that some here, but I didn't hear anything about that being the case. Mm-mm. Not in the commentary, no. 
Um, so definitely the case for the genie. I don't know if that was involved for um, Scuttle. Right. And it it's not he doesn't have a, a huge part, but it's still impactful. Like his presence is felt in this movie, even if he only has a handful of scenes. Yes. Um, in my notes, I do have that Buddy Hackett did pass away on June 30th of 2003 at the age of 78. 78's not a bad run. No, not at all. Uh, and he certainly has uh, a legacy that he's left behind. Uh, this, was... this this role included. Yes. And he was working well up until like right before he passed, too. He was in a show called action and in 99 to 2000. So right up until the end, he was doing stuff. And there's another one called all that that was up until 2002. So the year before he passed. Yeah. So it's, it's good that he was, I mean, obviously he enjoyed this. Like you can tell in his performance that this is a thing that he enjoyed doing and managed to get paid to do, but he probably would have been doing it anyway. Yeah. Makes me think about how Ben Wright, the voice of Grimsby, passed away four months before Little Mermaid premiered. And then how Howard Ashman was working up until his death Mm -hmm. in 91. Right. People were really dedicated to this stuff. And um, and I think I think performers uh, in many cases uh, do a little more working up until the end than the average profession. Right, because it, it becomes something they love. It's not just a job for them. It's their inner desire to entertain other people. Yeah. And and so many of them uh, engage in it beyond the point where typical retirement takes place. You know, there's, there, there's a large number of uh, actors and actresses and musicians and, and performers of all, all types, um, comedians and everything who just keep doing that. Um, even though if they were working what's considered a typical desk job, they would have retired years ago. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting that you sort of just see that happen. They, they tend to extend their career, uh, beyond what other careers, uh, are expected to, to perform. And I don't know why that is, but it might be something to do with, with arts versus, um, quote unquote mundane (laughs) jobs. But I, thinking about it, I would expect that, and, and certainly podcasting hasn't really been around long enough for that to be the case. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we were engaged with podcasting beyond the point of typical retirement. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. When I started, I only started this a couple months ago, and I have completely fallen in love with it. If I see a guest spot open, I'm like, please, let me go. I want to talk some more. Oh, yeah, wow. I, I, I think you've been one of the most guesting uh, Movies by Minutes podcast hosts uh, to jump into it recently. Um, yeah, I other love people, it. I think, are a little more established, and, and you certainly have made the rounds. I have heard you. <laughs> all over the place. So, you, so you're doing a good effort to to get that done, and it's being successful. You guys are dueling genre. You guys are dueling genre. Keep bringing me in. So, <laughs> well, you're a good guest. Thank you. So, I don't know how much of Scuttle's character was established after they got Buddy Hackett uh, as the role. There's a, a character moment 
which obviously isn't a Buddy Hackett moment. Scuttle's jumping down from the thing and he steps on Flounder's head. Yes. I But like the that space is- of that little island that he's on. I can't see a reason he would actually need to step on Flounder. Like, there's not, like, a tiny bay that Flounder is sitting in that he needs to step across, and so he steps on Flounder. It seems like just he steps on Flounder for no reason. <laughs> it well, doesn't seem- uh, to add to that, he's a bird. <laughs> he so can he could fly. fly over there. It's true. Well, and so he, like, he like throws down the anchor and takes his himself foot, his out of the is, crow's nest. His foot is caught in the in the, in the the rope, but also, why would he, why, why does why, he why have, does he have the anchor there? Like, and, did he pull the anchor up into that crow's nest <laughs> so yeah. that he could have this gag? Now, I know birds happen to be very light creatures. That's how they fly. So how was he strong enough to get this anchor up there? I don't know, because it looks like it's pretty heavy. Yes. Yeah, like it, it drops pretty quickly and... and and knocks him out. Yeah, and sounds nest. loud. I mean, so, anchors by design are heavy. Yeah, that's that is their job. And this is uh, the smallest anchor we've seen in this film so far, because we've had a very large anchor yes. uh, that may or may not have killed Glut the Shark. <laughs> uh, and then we have this this much smaller one. So I don't even know where he got this tiny anchor. Yeah, I don't know. But it like it's it's a funny gag. I I laugh every time. Yes. Yeah. But before that, he a- Ariel and Flounder wave to him and shout to him, and then he he has his telescope, telescope backwards. His, has he was tel- looking at it correctly before. Yeah, um, but he's like, "Whoa, they're so far away!" And they sounded far away, but they're not that far no, away. No, they're like three right inches from him. So, and and they're what? also like they're not far enough in the water for his inverted telescope to make them look like right. they're in the, in the water, <laughs> water that it looks like. yeah exactly and and but then they he tur- he takes it away and he's like whoa what a swim like they <laughs> swam there in the space it took for him to take the telescope away from his eye and like that's a wonderful like tiny gag yeah just yes. like a, a humorous line it's yeah. i'd say it's it's on par with uh, flounder saying like it looks really damp <laughs> like these are small jokes that i really enjoy and they don't give them a lot of time Whoa, so like what a swim. You're not supposed to really take yeah. time to laugh at it, but you are supposed to really enjoy it. Yeah. And I definitely enjoy it. Uh, but they did sound really far away. Like, they sounded as far away as <laughs> his telescope made them look. Yes. So, we have our first appearance of mermaid hair magically drying or not, not being soaked to the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just magically perfect outside of the water. I, I have nothing to say about it. <laughs> there's a con- I know it's a controversy. A lot of people are ha- have a problem with it. I don't personally because it's a cartoon, but I know a lot of people complain like, her hair wouldn't do that. She has too perfect of hair for coming out of the water. <laughs> but we have established magic. So right. it's okay, right? Definitely. Um. So uh, also at the beginning of this and and or the end of last minute, uh, depending on how you split it exactly, uh, Scuttle does sing about 1492, and this led Kester and I on a chase to discover when is this film set, at least okay. in theory. And it turns out this one is possibly the most problematic film uh, that anyone has tried for, as far as the Disney canon goes, that anyone has tried to determine when it took place. Because, uh, 
I mean, Skittle says 1492, but everything seems to indicate that it would be later than 1492. The fashions aren't consistent enough. Um, apparently, Grimsby is wearing uh, roughly Georgian era garb, which would which would be King George towards the end of the 1700s. Uh, some of Ariel's stuff is consistent with things that could have been even into the 1600s. Uh, but later, some of her other clothing at, when she's human is consistent with even the, the mid to late teen or late, <laughs> the mid to late 1800s. So there's kind of an anachronism. It's but possibly the 1600s, possibly the late 1700s. Maybe even into the late 1800s? But we don't think it, it tracks well with the 1800s. Because what well, I said the, was... Not the late 1800s. Not the late 1800s. Because it said uh, what we were looking at was saying 1890s. And we're like, and that, that feels, doesn't... That feels off. That does not feel right. Yeah. I could I could believe like maybe 1860... The 1840s. I mean, it certainly feels pre-industrial revolution. Um, but post-firearms. Yes. Uh, so I would say 1700s, um, and maybe even into the 1840s, 1850s. But I mean, they're not using like steamships. They're using sailing boats, in, sailing ships. In the immortal words of the Princess Bride, or the Princess Bride Minute, <laughs> yes. it's somewhere after Europe and before blue jeans. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or something like that. So, and, well, and just like we were trying to determine where it was. Uh, and it was a little problematic. It's like, uh, maybe some sort of combination of these three or four areas, not even places, but areas. Um, I think we're kind of getting a combination of maybe these three or four time periods as well. But I, I lean towards the earlier to mid 1800s, uh, for, for my, yeah. for my stake in it. It's been a while since I've I've really dug in to look at the technology that they have, like, in the castle and stuff. But that might be where your biggest clues are going to lie, like the stuff they use for cooking or weaponry and stuff like that. That's probably where you're going to get your biggest clues for that. Yeah, I think the, the cooking in particular would probably uh, yield some of the best results for that. Um, that kitchen does have some details, uh, but otherwise we see... You know, a horse-drawn carriage, that's a big that's a big time frame that that could, you know, be in. Right. We see the ship, again, a big time frame. The clothing, most of it's not too specific, but it's certainly, um, I, I'd say especially the uh, outfit Ariel wears, while she doesn't have a voice, the, there's like a, like a black and blue uh, and white ensemble that I think... And, and everything else we see around that time, it at least feels like there's an international um, component so that this this isn't an isolated um, area. So there must be international trade, which puts it, you know, in into the 17 or 1800s, most likely. Right. Um, where those sorts of things were more common. Eric's clothing apparently doesn't give anything away. <laughs> um, and, and if Grimsby's is an indication of late 1700s, that's. At least a little bit helpful. I think generally men's fashion is less um, easy to pinpoint. Yeah, less distinctive than female fashion because females tended to be more about fashion and being fashion uh, aware. Yeah, one of the resources we found was basing it uh, largely on fashion. It was it was a, a fashion historian who had you know done this work for um, 
several Disney movies and and said it's like, well, Pocahontas pretty easy. Um, <laughs> know exactly where and when that one is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Snow White. Uh, they settled on on the uh, early 1500s, which is about where we settled when when we were doing it as well, um, and and things like that. But even even that one said Little Mermaid is difficult. Like I'm not even sure. But these are the the areas that I see some evidence for, but none of them are really definitive, and some of them are a little bit contradictory. I know for Beauty and the Beast. They've narrowed it down to almost like a 20-year period. I think maybe later. even less on, on Beauty yeah. and the Beastly Minute. I did listen right. to that part where they worked it out, which is, uh, again, consistent with um, what the fashion person said, the late 1700s, and, and right. especially uh, very tightly um, into the the last cycle before the uh, French Revolution. Right. Uh, and that one's specifically France. Again, we don't have the specific area. Right. That would probably help with that. Um, and and like the seascape and the the seaside palace, like these don't look like things I I'm very familiar with. There's only so much area that has a great coastline. You know, it's it's limited. Whereas if you're interior uh, to to the continent, um, you tend to you tend to see things that are a little more familiar, and so you can narrow things down. Like I'm not very familiar with. With seascapes and and ocean right. sides, I think so. Part of it, when they show oh. cliffs, I'm like, I don't know where that is. <laughs> part of it might also be that with this starting the the Renaissance, they didn't know that they really wanted to focus on that kind of stuff. They didn't know they wanted it to be as important as they would in the next movies. They were just they weren't as focused on making those details important. Yeah, but I think uh, for for our sake and at least through the podcast, we'll settle on. Uh, early to mid 1800s uh, for this one. I could go with that. Other than that, the the only other two things I had to say, well, one of them was Scuttle and his mispronunciation. Okay, but it's so good (laughs) when he's talking about the Dinglehopper. And he sounds so... uh, I mean, he he treats it as though he is authoritative on the subject. Yes. In a really great way. Yeah. Um, what did he say? I didn't write it down. Uh, uh, about what in particular? Uh, it, it was at the very end of what he was. Oh, the, the word he mispronounces? Yes. Okay, so he takes the, the <laughs> fork and he says, oh, humans use this to straighten their hair. He doesn't say comb their hair. Like They're very careful not to use the word that you would expect. Right. And, and he starts running it through or he starts like tucking it into his own scalp. And twisting it like you're twisting up spaghetti, which <laughs> looks really kind of painful for him. Yes. Uh, and he's not using it the way you would use, even if you needed to use a fork to comb your hair. He's not using it the way you would. Right. So he says he, they use it to straighten their hair. And that's not exactly what he does. He twists it up and then he yanks it. And it ends as oh. uh, voyali <laughs> instead of voila. Yeah. <laughs> and which, it's like, which what would in you- the world? If he's saying voyali, that would wouldn't that? Uh, I'm trying to think of a way to wear this. Wouldn't Are you saying that, it should be France? No, no, uh, that would mean that he read the word. Um, because if he heard it, he could repeat it. Possibly. I mean, he certainly has an accent. Uh, uh, you know, an affected accent. So 
maybe he heard it and he's like, I, this is this is how I pronounce it. Okay. But <laughs> just but yeah, that's a good yeah, point. No, no. I, I think you're right. Misinterpretation would come from reading the word differently than it should be. But also, that's not how it's spelled. Right. <laughs> There's that as like, well. Voila isn't yeah. spelled like voyali. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. But it works. It, like, it's such a, like, ah, oh, Scuttle's hilarious. <laughs> I think I found him more frustrating when I was a kid. Because I wasn't getting this humor, but watching it now, I'm like, <laughs> he's great. This, bird's, he, this is great. This bird's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I want to know how is Flan- how is flounder breathing? I think he's just staying low enough, and not all fish need to keep moving constantly for breathing. He's I think it's out of the water for a lot of it, though. He's like we never see where his lungs are. Maybe his, his lungs gills. are really, or yeah, his gills, <laughs> not lungs. His gills are real low, maybe. Um, or he's he's just real good at uh, holding his breath. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to mention was music related. The background music in this particular scene mm-hmm. has a lot. I think pretty much everything's been scored like throughout this film yes. so far. I don't know if there's been a silent, silent portion. I think so. I don't think so. But um, the it the. They derived some of the songs in the Broadway musical from this particular scoring. So we heard, um, I've seen the Broadway musical on Broadway, and Andrew's listened to the music. Yeah, I've ne- I have not seen anything on Broadway yet. <laughs> but um, the, the, the two particular songs that we heard were Beyond My Wildest Dreams, which is the opening song for Act Two mm-hmm. and um, one step closer, which is a song where uh, Prince Eric is teaching Ariel how to dance. Yeah, but um, both of those songs, the the theme of each song is coming from the music we're hearing in the in the background here, oh, which cool. was um, I Kestra says that's a thing they do when they adapt uh, Disney animated films into Broadway musicals. They have to expand the 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 book for the musical and. So they take songs that were score elements and they turn them into larger uh, musical numbers. I Neither of the songs that Kestra mentioned I felt were especially memorable, but I do like hearing that the theme was based on yeah, score elements by Alan Mankin. That's really interesting. Um, the music throughout this whole thing, it's so great. And it's so interesting to hear how they like intentionally wanted to have the the tone of all the music be different from your typical orchestral score stuff and i think it's it's fantastic and it works and i i wish more people were thinking that way more often right uh, to say like there's so little violin throughout all of this it's so much horns and and uh brass and woodwinds yeah, i'd say definitely those are probably the strongest instruments that they they put into the score in this one uh do you have anything else? The only other note I have is that he's actually sitting in a crow's nest, which I thought was mildly ironic since he's a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> he, he built his own nest into the crow's nest. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, if anybody doesn't know, a crow's nest is the highest point on a ship where they can uh, be a lookout for like lands and stuff like that and other ships. Isn't, isn't it also, was it particularly small? Of a crow's nest? This one is. 
Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's I don't know where sized. he got this. <laughs> I don't know where he got this tiny crow's nest to make his own. The seven dwarfs built a ship, and <laughs> <laughs> just tying everything together, and it sailed for three hundred years, <laughs> and then scuttle. Got the crow's nest off of it. Yeah. Well, it didn't have to sail that long. It could have been sitting here that long. <laughs> that's true. It, it could have been sunk. All right. Well, that's all we have for today, listeners. We are part of Dueling Genre, and you can find us and many other podcasts at DuelingGenre.com. There, you will also find a link to a Patreon page where you can support all Dueling Genre productions. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at DizMinute, on email as DisneyAnimationMinute at gmail.com, and on Facebook at the Disney Animation Minute Secret Essential Listener Society or Damsels Group. Our guests can be found at... I can be found at www.growlermedia.com slash neverendingminute. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at nevendmin, that's N-E-V-E-N-D-M-I-N. If you're looking for me, I'm the Wookiee Lives on Twitter and Instagram. You can check us out on Facebook. Go to the Never Any Minute page or the Never Any Minute Listener Society. If you feel like sending me an email, check us or send it to Never Any Minute at Outlook.com. And we want to thank all of the Movies by Minutes people. You can check all of them out at MoviesByMinutes.com. There's an ongoing catalog of the various podcasts that exist following the same format and it's a it, it is an impressive catalog at this point. There are quite a few and more than a few of them taking on franchises kind of like how we are doing it right now. Uh, I don't know if you guys are planning to franchise Never Ending Minute into the sequels. It's been discussed and what we've decided is that at the end of this we'll let our listeners decide if we oh, move right. on. So, that's fair. You know, you don't have to commit <laughs> right away. <laughs> exactly. Uh, But as for us, until next time, next week we'll be releasing more episodes. Until then, thank you for making us part of your world. (laughs) 